From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. At its heart, the band Whitney's really just a songwriting duo. So when they wanted to take their new songs on the road, they kind of lucked out. We have a really good supportive friend group in Chicago, and they all just happen to play like the correct instruments. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk with Whitney about their new album, Forever Turned Around. Plus, in honor of Labor Day, we share our favorite songs about quitting your job. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we are talking with the band Whitney. It just released its second album, Forever Turned Around. But first, Greg, in honor of Labor Day, we are going to share our favorite songs about quitting your job. I have done this several times in my <laughs> career. Uh, it, it can feel very liberating. It can also feel very frightening. As with all great life-changing events, there's a wide range of emotions, and there's a lot of different songs encapsulating them, and you get to go first. Yes, indeed, Jim. Uh, one of the most iconic uh, figures that we're going to be talking about today is this man, Jimmy Reed, a great blues artist uh, from the 50s and 60s primarily when he had his greatest successes, just a string of key songs during that era. Big Boss Man is one of the most well-known of those songs. It's a little shuffle, a blues shuffle, but uh, the groove is one of those uh, most imitated Jimmy Reed grooves of all time. He had a great band with him in the studio, including Willie Dixon on bass and Earl Phillips on drums, and his wife singing backup vocals. She was his co-songwriter on many songs. This particular song uh, was actually written by Reed's manager and one of the VJ staff writers at the time, Luther Dixon, which is odd because, you know, uh, Jimmy Reed is talking about sticking it to the man here. You know, mm-hmm. the man could be his manager for all we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, and the way he, he talks about it, it you know, he's, he's almost got like this laconic style. It's kind of laid back, you know. He's, he's not giving the big boss man the, you know, the compliment of respecting or fearing or getting mad at him. He's dismissing him like he's flicking a fly flicking off, him his off his forearm, shoulder, yeah. you know? You're a big guy, but you're not that. You're just tall. That's all you are. <laughs> you know, that's big deal, you know? You're bothering me. You're making my life miserable. You're just, I see right through you. You're another big shot trying to make me feel small so you can feel bigger. You know, you're not much of a man at all. That's the attitude that comes through in this song for me. In that sense, it's a very subtle uh, kiss-off song, but there's no doubt that he's singing about, you know, I'm moving on to something better uh, as soon as I get rid of you. Big Boss Man from Jimmy Reed on Sound Opinions. Big Boss Man Can't you hear me when I'll come Big Boss Man Big boy, can't you hear me when I call? 
That is Big Boss Man from Jimmy Reed, a big hit in 1960, covered by numerous artists as a oh, yeah. uh, quitting job song. What do you got, Jim? Well, Greg, probably uh, the go-to obvious choice for this show on uh, great songs about quitting your job would have been uh, Take This Job and Shove It, the <laughs> 1977 uh, classic of country music written by David Allen Coe. Uh, became a huge hit uh, under Johnny Paycheck. It's been covered many times, right? Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done But that's almost too obvious. I'm going to go way deep onto the soundtrack of perhaps uh, one of the most inspiring movies for quitting your job of all time. Office Space comes out in 1999, right? I mean, it is so true to life. We've all lived some of that stuff. The guy with the stapler, you know, uh, you know, um, you won't mind working all day Saturday, all that stuff, right? So uh, Cannabis was a freestyle rapper, made a little bit of a name for himself in the mid-90s, put out a solo album in 1998. Um, as far as I can tell, this is a really hard track to track down. Uh, it's, got a, it's a collaboration between Cannabis and Biz Markie. Now, Biz, of course, is the clown prince of hip-hop, uh, one of the great stellar comic talents in all of rap history, I believe. He kind of samples, reworks, makes his own. The uh, Johnny Paycheck, David Allen Co. take this job and shove it. Chorus in between cannabis going on about, you know, six o'clock every morning you wake up yawning. The number of songs about work or quitting your job mm. uh, that begin with the alarm clock ringing. I mean, it's endless. Yeah, right. You know, from Rush's Working Man to uh, Shove This J-O-B by Cannabis and Biz Markie. I, I'm just super fond of this one. Here they are on Sound yeah. Yo, six o'clock every morning, you waking up yawning to the sound of your alarm clock alarm. About an hour from now, you should be at your place of employment, which is annoying because it's so boring. Your co-workers be talking too loud for you to ignore them. It affects your occupational performance. You wonder why your workload is so enormous? Because your boss just laid off three quarters of the whole office. People get depressed, they get ulcers from the stress that the corporate environment causes. Regardless of how you ultimately want to solve this, seems to me like you got one in four choices. You could take a new job offer for more tips, stick it out a little longer, or forfeit. But my advice to anybody that wants to quit, it'll feel much better if you say it like this. Hey, you 
shove this J-O-B. That's J-A-Y-O-B-E-E. It's it's a hard one to find, not on the streaming services. I know. I love this track, though. Uh, it's so hilarious. <laughs> Isn't it great? It, it's really it's really a lot of fun, and, and it's too bad because um, Bismarcky's career criminally underappreciated way under it we should do a bismarcky uh <laughs> like like series of shows oh my goodness here's another uh band that i think is criminally underrated too although not by their hardcore fans i mean the descendants have been around since the 70s mm. um they have been putting out records uh since 1982 uh they put them out uh every few years sometimes there's huge gaps between those records and the reason I bring that up is uh, because that, in some ways, is the subject of their song, I Quit, which came out in 2004. Uh, Milo, the lead singer in the band, Milo Ackerman, who mm-hmm. is, is one of those guys who is an extremely multifaceted individual. He has, uh, he's got a Ph.D. in biology. He's uh, taught, you know, he's been a professor in college. He's worked, at, at, you know, at, at chemical plants uh, in addition to being the lead singer in this long-running punk band. And at times he said, you know, I'm only going to do this for fun. If it stops being fun, I'm going to quit. Yeah. I'm going you know, because I got a wife and family. I got these other jobs that I like to do. I don't have to do this as a full-time job. So it's, it's really, it's the most punk rock song ever. I mean, <laughs> who else is going to write a song about, hey, this yeah. punk rock stuff, you know? Ah, I'm done with it. Get out the window. You know, I'm going to be more punk rock than you. <laughs> um, what do you think? I wanted to be Mick Jagger or something, playing the Pixie at 50 or 60? Give me a break. This is, these yeah, are yeah, lines yeah. from the song. I'm going to quit. Uh, it's not about, you know, enduring career, you know, fame and fortune. It's about, is this fun or not? And, um, and this song addresses that very succinctly. I quit from the descendants in 2004 on Sound Opinions. That is The Descendants with I Quit. Milo Ackerman doesn't always want to be in The Descendants, although he is now, thankfully. But there have been long gaps between records, and that's the reason, because he has other things that he wants to do as well. Life is more than just a slogging away in a van. That's right. I was almost going to not go to Bob Dylan 
Maggie's Farm because it's such an obvious choice. But then I realized the uh, the deep seated mm. personal connection I have with this song. So uh, you know, January 1965, uh, one of the early Dylan classics released on Bringing It All Back Home, uh, seen not only as uh, what our pal Bill Wyman called a uh, laconic look at the service industry, <laughs> uh, but but as you know, Maggie's Farm toiling away on Maggie's Farm is a metaphor for I am not going to be what you, the man, expect me to be mm-hmm. in that great 60s way. Um, I, this is not a, a story about uh, quitting that I'm going to tell you, but about getting fired. If you want to look at the particulars, John Karamanica just had me on his podcast a couple of weeks ago telling once again my footnote to a footnote to rock infamy, getting fired for panning Hootie and the Blowfish at <laughs> Rolling Stone. But there I was, my w- wife at the time was seven months pregnant. I'm having to drive in disgrace back to the Midwest after having been, you know, and the song that kept playing in my head was Maggie's Farm by Bob Dylan, except I, I was tinkering with the lyrics. I ain't going to work on Jan Wenner's farm no more. And, and really, it played in my head uh, for a good three, four weeks there until I filed for unemployment, began to rebuild my life. Uh, a great song about quitting. You know, if you're about to get fired, it is good to quit first, <laughs> except that you can't collect unemployment. Right, so right. it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Bob Dylan on Sound Opinions. Scrub the floor. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. One of the all-time great, I ain't gonna work for you no more songs, Maggie's Farm by Bob Dylan. What's uh, what's your last pick? Well, you know, that's a classic, and I don't think I can vouch for this next song as a classic, but to me it is absolutely hilarious, and it's something I think all of us at a certain point in our lives 
uh, have wanted to say, you know, about our boss. You know, everybody has uh, worked a job where they feel like this. Beck with uh, soul-sucking jerk. <laughs> um, you know, okay. You know, the first lines of the song, this is from his 1994 uh, album, his third album that was kind of the Mellow Gold record, which was his breakthrough record. Uh, the one with Loser on it. Everybody remembers that song. Yep. This one's on there as well. Um, he's got a job in a shopping mall, you know, where he has to wear puke, a puke green uniform, to Ooh. quote him directly, and serve fried chicken to customers that he obviously hates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what's the logical uh, response to that? Plus, well, Beck is a vegan. Yeah. You don't want to be serving any chicken. Clearly in a dead-end job that, you know, is, is a soul-sucking job. Um, you know, we did what any rational person would do. He sets fire to his uniform. He jumps. He jumps over the counter. He runs through the mall. He gets lost downtown. Uses a fake fur coat that he borrows from a prostitute to hide from the cops. I mean, yeah. this this is all part of this scenario. Beck, the storyteller. Yes, Beck is telling this wild, fanciful tale about a, a character who is clearly not loving his job and quits on the spot in a fit of pique that uh, ends up in a huge fire and a chase through through a shopping mall. It's Beck with Soul Suckin' Jerk on Sound Opinions. I got a job making money for the man Throw a chicken in a bucket with a soda pop can Cute green uniform on my back I had to set it on fire in the vat of chicken fat I leaped on the counter like a bird with no hair Running through the many mall in my underwear I got lost downtown, couldn't find a ride home Frozen to the bone Till a hooker let me share her fake fur coat As I took a little nap The cops picked up the spoke I tried to explain I was only trying to get warm I knew I never ever should have burned my uniform He said too bad But I bite the bullet hard slug I didn't have no teeth So I stole his gun And I crawled out the window With my shadow and a spoon Dancing on the roof Shooting holes in the moon With soul sucking jerk on sound opinions, <laughs> a message to his boss. <laughs> oh man, uh, Greg, I am going to close out with a song uh, that uh, this this is this is one of those touching, really super emotional uh, daddy daughter moments uh, that I will share with you. When uh, Melody was, I think, uh, four and was just beginning to become aware of music and and like 
wondering what kind of music Dad liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught her to sing this song. <laughs> uh, we changed the lyrics, uh, you know. I, although I always held that there are no bad words, only inopportune mm-hmm. times to use them, like perhaps at preschool. Right. Uh, so don't don't sing those words. Uh, but I was trying to instill in my daughter uh, uh, a love of sticking it to the man. Mm-hmm. So I went to one of my all-time favorite bands, Wire, Pink Flag, Mr. Suit. No, 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 Mr. Suit, right? Um, this is one of the songs that Wire doesn't play anymore. Uh, you know, there was so much of the older stuff that was so far ahead of its time uh, and, and that merges very nicely in with the music they're making that is very much of the moment in 2019. This this song from the debut album Pink Flag is firmly 1977. Mm-hmm. You know, this is Sex Pistols, uh, 76, Summer of Hate. No, 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 no. I'm tired of being told what to think. I'm tired of being told what to do. I'm tired of blank and phonies. That's right. I'm tired of you. That is the ultimate no Mr. Suit song. There mm-hmm. was a Mr. Suit, the boys in Wire have told me. Yeah. Uh, I believe he was a record company or management you know, related and literally would come to, you know, the hundred club, which is people with mohawks and safety pins through their noses, hocking loogies at each other in a suit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, there's always, it, it, there's it's always that guy timeless. There's yeah. always that guy, Mr. Suit by wire on sound opinions. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Mr. Suit by Wire, unless you uh, accuse me of child abuse. My daughter grew up to love musical theater, so I didn't (laughs) warp her that bad by teaching her that song. We want to hear from you now. What is your favorite song about quitting a job? Call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and tell us about it and why it works for you. In a minute, we'll talk with the Chicago band Whitney, whose music mixes the genres of indie and soft rock with a little bit of soul. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the opening to No Woman by the band Whitney. That was the song that vaulted the Chicago duo of Julian Ehrlich and Max Kakasik into wider recognition worldwide. Whitney's a songwriting project primarily of Julian and Max, but uh, they've toured extensively as a seven-piece band. And uh, even with a band of that size, they're still going for nuance instead of bombast. Now that mix, that uh, subtle mix of folk, rock, orchestral soul, it doesn't seem like a formula for wide appeal today. Yeah, but they have been super successful, Greg. So much so that Chicago's new mayor, Lori Lightfoot, declared August 30th (laughs) Whitney Day. And Elton John has bragged about being a fan. Uh, How did the band get here? Well, the previous group, Smith Westerns, was a favorite of ours. After three albums, Max and Julian parted ways with that band. Then one day, the two of them recorded a song at home that surprised them. Max says it began as a joke. So pretty much six months after the that, I think me, me and Julian woke up one morning and just decided to kind of start playing a song that essentially started as a joke song. We had never written together one-on-one. Mm. I think I was playing the guitar somewhere. It was a riff to Dave's song off the first album. And Julian was just kind of walking around humming a melody. And then that day we just recorded the whole thing on a tape recorder. And that was the beginning of the project. Cool. Oh, no, I wish you were my friend. You started sort of in this casual manner, uh, starting to write some songs. When did you kind of realize it was beyond casual and, and there was something here that had some some life to it, something that you wanted to show the public? This is Julian. We recorded, I think, Golden Days was like the third song that we did, and that was when like that song sort of like upped the ante a little bit, and we are like, oh... I guess we're capable of this, so now we have to make everything, you know, try to make everything that good. Did you have a sound in mind, you know, like when you started playing? I assume it was very open-ended, but uh, did you feel like, oh, we nailed something here about what we sound like together and what we can do going forward? What was it specifically? about that song and the sound, the way it felt, that resonated with you? Right at that time, we were really kind of obsessed with, I think, three kind of ideas of bands. Um, the band, obviously. Take a load off, Betty. And you put the load you right on me. And then Aminaz and I think at that time Donnie and Joe Emerson and the demo recording we had of Golden Days I think sounded like all those three things combined in the weirdest way and I think we kind of stumbled upon that now Max excuse my ignorance obviously the band I know tell us about these other two Donnie and Joe Emerson Emerson, there are two brothers I think I think Light in the Attic has pretty much re-released everything that they've made but they essentially their father thought they were going to be this big band, they like put their farm on mortgage to support mm. them making a record when they're like 18 or 19. And it's a pretty. They, they like built a studio yeah. in the barn or something, yeah. I thought too. Sandy Beach was 
great at yeah. finding these yeah. treasures that have been lost mm-hmm. for 30, 40 years. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the vocals are have a certain quality to them, like they're higher-pitched male vocals. Um, not exactly what we do, but similar in some way. And Amanaz is like a uh, Zam rock band uh, from probably late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Hello, color my friend. kind of like out of tune weird guitars and I'm not just a little more soul to it than Donnie and Joe. Donnie and Joe are a little more like soft rock classic. I'm glad to hear you say that word because there is uh, I've seen the shorthand description of Whitney Sound seems to be classic indie rock with a little Chicago soul Mm -hmm. right which seems dismissive but actually uh, that's not a bad description (laughs) if you consider indie rock embracing everything from the band to uh, Bon Iver Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah. I guess going back to golden days, like the way that we like expressed like what to us was like a pretty complex emotion in like a really simple way and like getting that sentiment out. That was the first time that we were like, oh, I guess we have the ability to do mm. that. It felt really like therapeutic to make that song too. For people who don't know, uh, Max plays guitar largely, and Julian, you are a drummer. And I think you know people when they see you for the first time. I've I've had this conversation with people who had come to the band in 2016 once you'd put your first album out, and they go, "Wow, that the guy, the lead singer, is the drummer." Uh, and so, okay, Julian, so address that. I mean, the whole idea of you know playing the drums and singing and singing lead vocals. I mean, it's not uncommon but it's not something that you see uh, generally well i have to interject as a drummer you know levon helm aside yeah buddy miles phil collins which many people would debate and then the list of good singing drummers is pretty much over yeah i think (laughs) you're you're pretty much right (laughs) (laughs) so hopefully hopefully i'm i'm like a number below the fourth the fourth yes Funny enough, like in the beginning of the band, talking to different labels and stuff, like people expressed quite a bit of like uh, trepidation or whatever when it came to that. And we, being like 23, 24 or whatever, we kind of took that as like a 
like a challenge. We were like, all right, let's like try to. We'll show you. Yeah. I do not understand this. It's 2019, you know, and there are still people who have rules. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the drummer shouldn't sing, yeah. dude. It's like front man needs front to man. stand up. It's like, yeah. no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously a, a bigger band too it's not just you two guys but uh, you have other musicians with you on stage it's a uh, it's I would describe it as there's an orchestral pop feel to a lot of it orchestral soul whatever you want to call it how did you sort of evolve from the two of you guys you know in your apartment writing stuff to this bigger more expansive look on stage really I mean just super organically it was like we have a really good supportive friend group in Chicago and they all just happened to play like the correct instruments. <laughs> like there was I remember getting like, I don't know, kind of tipsy one night and like we were living with this dude Malcolm who plays keys for our band and we were playing Zelda or something, or I was like watching him play Zelda and I was like, Wait man, like do you want to join the band? Like I thought it was like a really like sentimental moment and his answer was just like, <laughs> I thought I was already in the band. <laughs> like, <laughs> So it was just super expected that, like, you know, we were going to do it. And that sound, obviously the music is sort of uh, designed that way. Was that an organic thing? Because you, you hear it very much in place in that in that first album that you guys put on in 2016, even more so on the new one, uh, for, Forever Turned Around. And it's not something you normally see with, you know, a, a band that's sort of starting out in this grassroots manner. It's just kind of like, you know, a couple of guys, it's, you know, the overhead, et cetera. It doesn't seem like you felt like you could present your music the way you wanted to unless you had these extra musicians up there with you beyond the core band. Yeah, I mean, I think they're absolutely essential. Um, and I think a lot of the beginning demos even had horns and strings on them before we, I guess you can say, we like properly recorded the first album. Same thing with when we had demos for the uh, Forever Turned Around. I can't, I think it started with horns was like the first kind of part that we kind of widened to a texture we'd never recorded before um i don't think julie and i had ever kind of worked with a horn player before and the first day we met will was um i think it was the song polly on the first album he came in to record horns for that chorus section in the outro and he just improvised the outro Pretty much after that, we were just like, well, do you just want to be in the band? Kind of similar with Malcolm. Um, and it just worked out. And then after horns were in there, the next obvious element was strings. And we basically met Macy Stewart in Ohm, of course, through that as well. Since then, it's just kind of been, you know, part of the entire sound. Yeah. But I do feel part of our, like, main objective with the second record was, like, if we did play the songs in their most, like, bare or simplest form... 
uh, a la like Neil Young uh, live at Massey Hall or blah blah blah. Just like if we were to strip them back to like either acoustic or Wurlitzer and vocal, like we needed the songs to to be just as good, basically. It's still there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the songs on Forever Turned Around seem to have this theme and this vibe of kind of dislocation. Even the way you record it, right? You record part of it in Oregon, part of it in Wisconsin. This is a time that you feel like you're turned around constantly. Uh, that's the vibe I'm getting mm-hmm. and what I can make out of your lyrics. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what we <laughs> what we were going for. Trying to make a record that isn't isn't like wholly dark or like reflective of what's going on in the world, but kind of. Kind of confused. Like, yeah, because like you don't, I don't know. At least I don't want to hear like super like wallowing in the sadness sort of music right now. Like I think it's important for music to allow people to escape what's going on a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. But you can't ignore what's happening around yeah, you. Yeah, not at all. You mm-hmm. still have to, you know, we've been talking about it a little bit too. That sort of sense of uh, melancholy and, and sadness versus uh, the music is sort of, uh, you if you just sort of paid attention to it in the background, you would say, well, that's kind of a upbeat kind of bright sounding melody and then you listen closer and you go oh this guy's kind of there's a little forlorn quality to some of the mm-hmm. some of the voices you know and some of the the sentiments that are being expressed so are you conscious of the fact that you don't you just said you don't want to bum people out is is, is the idea of the melodies being a big part of that the best way to describe it is there's a song that we actually just released called the uh, valleys and um the chorus of that song was written first and the lyric is just my love repeated and it's a pretty upbeat happy melody Our conversation throughout that course is like, how do we use the verse to make this song not just a simple, happy pop song? And how do we use the lyrics in the verse to give it some depth and some complexity that can also make it melancholic, even though the chorus is seemingly like a bright, sunny moment? A lot of times in every song there's that moment that we're trying to find that kind of ability to have opposites within it, whether it's um, lyrics that are, you know, melancholic or melodies that are melancholic combating against something else that's a little bit more simple and Mm -hmm. happier. I just want to dial it back to 2016 a little bit because I, I think it's really amazing what happened when you put out that No Woman single early in that year and all of a sudden... Your guys are touring Europe and you're getting major label inquiries, etc. I mean, it had to be a little bit of a surprise to you guys, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, like, you can never expect that something's going to catch on, maybe even the way that you think it could. But I think as soon as it did start to pop off a little bit, we were both like, uh-oh, like this, this could maybe get a little bit bigger than we thought. <laughs>
we did. Yeah, we did go straight to Europe mm. after releasing that song. And Europe has mm. always been like a pretty amazing territory for us still. You say that with some dread, though. Surely it would be nice not to have a day job, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, I mean, like, we never wa want to, like, complain about what we get to do for a living. Yeah, um, just didn't but, expect it. Yeah, didn't expect it. Um, didn't expect to be going to Europe, like, six or seven times in the span of, like, a year and a half. Yeah. But we love it over there. We have what's a your, lot of What's fans. your favorite place to play in Europe? Lisbon. 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 Cool. Uh, also London. I like, I like you know, we have, like, a weird kind of affection for Bergen too in Norway. The shows there have not been like the, you know, largest, craziest experience. We've always played this art space right in like the middle of the city that's like very cool and like well curated and everyone there is super amazing. And all the food is so much better and the people are nicer and specifically <laughs> Copenhagen, they have a there's like a personal chef backstage at that wow. venue. Yeah, it's it's one of the wow. wildest sounding things. That See, you to are do. gonna wind up being Don Henley. <laughs> <laughs> Does he? Okay, he actually jumped and sang too, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, we shouldn't even talk about that. <laughs> We'll hear more from Max and Julian of Whitney in a minute, including how they saved money on their first tours by camping. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim DeRogatis, and we're in the middle of our conversation with Julian Ehrlich and Max Kakasik of the band Whitney. I've been a big fan of these guys from the start, but uh, Jim, you were really won over by one very specific song, and you asked Julian for the backstory on how it came together. I was thinking, too, that the Dolly Parton cover, going to hurry slow as mm -hmm. I can, right? You put out after the album. That, like, turned my head around. Like, oh, really interesting. <laughs> what are these guys? What, what made you choose to cover? I mean, besides the fact that she's a goddess, underappreciated for how mm -hmm. brilliant the music is. Yeah. Uh, that was a song showed to us while we were mm. like making the first record mm. and then we just had an extra day like a free day in New York and we recorded it with our friend so cool because it's she must be like 18 mm -hmm. i think yeah and, and her you can hear how young she is like yeah. specifically in that song Just cry, cry over you. Well, I, I feel sorry, so sorry for myself but i i've got to leave i know it's true oh, oh. she just sounds like so young and it's just the first time I heard it I kind of couldn't believe it was Dolly Parton at first for some reason. I think she's heard it potentially too there was one or like yeah. her management's heard it because they had to tell us whether or not we could make like a video for it or yeah. something no. the answer was no <laughs> yeah the oh, answer was no, no. no. It's fine. <laughs> see I think if you could get past her people and just appeal to Dolly I hope I would hope that she would like it yeah, yeah. I bet so I just think like putting an image to it I probably yeah. wouldn't want 
anyone to do I, that either. I completely understand. Yeah. It's totally cool. We're, we're, we're all good with Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no hard feelings. What's interesting about... Uh, you guys write the lyrics together, right? I mean, Julian, you're singing them mostly, but it's you and Max together on the lyrics. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, like, Forever Turned Around especially was, like, just the most collaborative we could have possibly gotten. Has your heart grown heavy Like I was also improving as a guitar player and working out some of the chord progressions and we did basically every single thing together. We spent so much time together for this recording process and writing process that it became that we kind of had just had like one brain really um, between the two <laughs> of us. Mind meld. get along really really easily and like even when there's a day when one of us will have an idea that you know you become obsessed with that the other one isn't too hot on usually by the next day you realize that it's just the other person pushing you to make something better and you know you have to be able to let those things go and that's part of the writing process yeah it sounds like there's a lot less drama in your band than there was in the past i'm, <laughs> I'm reading between the lines yeah <laughs> i would, uh, I would you, agree with you're that 100 percent correct a band is starting out, what would you tell them about not letting the drama interfere? Because obviously music is very personal. How do you, how do you manage to overcome that? What would you tell a, a young band starting out about how to do that? I feel like my advice would be more about touring or something. Or like, I think it was so important for us to just play as many shows as we possibly could around Chicago in the beginning because that still is probably the most effective way to like gain any sort of a fan base. How do you go from, you know, local band that's playing gigs regularly in its hometown to, you know, touring the world? I mean, that was, you've done that progression pretty quickly in the last three years. What was, to your mind, the, the key to that happening? First of all, with anything with success in music, I think a big part of luck comes in at some point. The thing that we got really lucky with was honestly the formation of our band and the commitment of those five other members that, you know, came out on the road with us right away, all left their apartments. We lived in the van for a year and a half, and everyone was just really committed to the project. And I don't think we said no to a single show for two years. That's how it worked. The first, yeah. first six months, mm -hmm. you know, we were playing to empty rooms or opening or getting any show we could and then you know slowly worked our way up to where we are i would also recommend splitting the live money equally <laughs> between yeah. the band yeah. it just makes better harmony i guess because there's nothing so might as well have a seventh yeah, of exactly. nothing yeah you, than... you start with absolutely nothing <laughs> yeah um or yeah. we did we were making like 200 bucks a night opening for wild nothing and um, so seven ways after it was yeah. we, we were just it like kind of like get, we'd, we'd get a bunch of food from a fast food place and we were staying at KOAs at that point. We <laughs> had we had actually had a ten one ten person tent, wow. which was like maybe the silliest decision we made, but wow. we, it worked out for a minute. 
Josiah and I, the bass player in our band, got bunk bed cots. Yeah. Mm. We would like, it was the most ridiculous. Like, we thought it was the best idea in the world. And then we bought them. And first off, they're like so incredibly heavy and like mm -hmm. such a pain to set up, actually. For a while, we did the whole couch surfing thing too, but we, each member of the band had their own cot. So if you let us stay at your house, we'd come in there and like set up beds anywhere we possibly could. And then you'd come back and be like, wait, what? you like, wouldn't be able to walk through your living room or whatever because there'd be a bunch of like seven sleeping people on these like raised beds. Wow. Lots of snoring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talking to Julian and Max of Whitney. Uh, Forever Turned Around is the new album that they're going to get to uh, go to Norway and many other places on tour. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Say hi to Norway for sound opinions, fellas. We will. Oh, we will. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Yeah, thank you. That wraps up our conversation with Max and Julian of the band Whitney. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-depth interview with James Alexander, the great bassist of the Barquets, and we're also going to be talking about our favorite bassists. You can download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. The show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Yes, this is Russell Gow from Ashburn, North Carolina. Cameo appearance definitely got to be the concert for Bangladesh. Leon Russell, when he comes in on Beware of Darkness. Man, I'm going to tell you, he nailed it, baby. What down now? Only the master of space and time can do a song like Leon Russell. But that definitely is the one that stood out the most. Thank you so much. Hi, Grady Jim. It's Jeff from Danville, California. I just listened to the pod on best music cameos, and I think you left off a major one. Eddie Van Halen's drop-in solo on Michael Jackson's Beat It. The song has historical significance, uh, along with Billie Jean. The song and Van Halen's contribution was a major milestone in getting Michael crossed over to the then all-white MTV. Plus, it's one of the first meldings of pop R&B and heavy metal. And most importantly, the song slaps. 
Uh, I'm no Van Halen trooper, but Eddie's solo is absolutely perfect on the song. It drops in, sets it afire, and then walks away. P.S. Best Live Cameo, uh, Prince destroying everything and everyone on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tribute to George Harrison doing uh, Wild My Guitar Jenny Weeks. Thanks much. Love the pod. Hi, this is Dennis Gulligan from Chicago. Uh, my favorite cameo, I think, would have to be Mary Clayton on the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter. The juxtaposition of her soulful voice with Mick Jagger's rock tones and then the like very raw in her voice as she screams about rape and murder make that definitely my favorite cameo. Yes, my name is Dale. I'm calling from Durango, Colorado. Just listed your show on cameos. <clears throat> and uh, one I wanted to share, which is actually not a cameo, to do what David Bowie and Freddie Mercury under pressure. Even to this day when I hear it, it stops me in my tracks and it makes me tear up. It's so beautiful, so much, but there's something very complex going on in that song that's captured me for all these years. Thanks, guys, for your show. Really appreciate it. Keep on keeping on. Bye-bye. Yo, Jim and Greg, this is Scott from GI, and I just listened to the cameo show you guys did. And I know doggone well that you guys didn't leave out one of the greatest cameos of all time. David Boyd on Queens Under Pressure. Man, you guys are slipping. Just kidding. Keep doing what you're doing. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.